yeah, up in Kashmir when I was, uh, well, I can get to that. I mean, I had, had to hide under an Al-Qaeda, Lashkar Taibi mosque while people were out after me. And I'm sitting there with my pen knife under the floorboards and a flashlight going, you dumb shit. You deserve every bit of this. Welcome back to Cognitive Revolution. I'm Cody Calmers, and this is my show about the personal side of the intellectual journey. My guest today is Scott Atron. He, so Scott, oh my gosh, Scott is so cool. Uh, he is an anthropologist, a cultural anthropologist, and he's got a bunch of fancy titles in Paris and Michigan and Oxford and that sort of stuff. Um, and, you know, so he's, he's a, a, a prolific academic but he's just done so much cool field work that, and this is something that you'll hear a lot about during this conversation, is that he's constantly in peril uh, to run the studies and talk to the people that he, he needs to talk to in order to get the information that he is interested in. And he's just been situated in a really cool spot in, in the history of behavioral science. So he was uh, a student of Margaret Mead's. And, um, you know, of course, one of the, the most significant public intellectuals of the 20th century and a huge figure in anthropology. So he studied with her and he's got all these cool stories about uh, working for her and then um, being centrally located in a lot of cool cognitive science stuff that was happening at the time, including orchestrating uh, this really important conference between Noam Chomsky and a lot of European intellectuals. And the stories that he tells about that are hilarious. And then, you know, going into his own field work, where, again, like I'm saying, you know, he just sort of evidently seeks out these places where there's a non-negligible chance of him perishing in in the course of, of doing his scientific work. So uh, it was, I basically just sort of prompted him and let the let the tape roll and pick up his incredible anecdotes, that sort of stuff. And I loved it. And um, the, the work that I'm really familiar with him is um, uh, this book called Talking to the Enemy, which is really great. But we didn't even get to that part of his career in, in, in this. Um, we talked about a lot of stuff that I wasn't as familiar with, but was so cool to hear about. So I, I do hope we can do a part two at some point in the future. But it just goes to show that there's there's so much that is interesting about Scott, and he's just got such an interesting perspective, and he's everything I love in an anthropologist. So I'm excited to share this conversation and excited, hopefully, to have another one with Scott in due course. But without any further ado, here is Scott Atron. The first thing I usually like to ask is, is where did you grow up? Well, I was born in New York, spent my very early childhood in California, uh, near LA, when it was just orange fields, and then uh, moved to the suburbs of Baltimore, where I spent um, my adolescence. And then I left, I left when I was 17 and never looked back. Right. Yeah. So, what what was um what was the nature of all the moving around? What did your parents do? My father was a uh, aeronautical engineer. Um, and he worked for uh, well, he worked for 
various aerospace industries. And uh, then he decided he wanted to go to Johns Hopkins to continue his studies for a while. And then he went to work for Westinghouse Corporation, and, and which was next to Fort Meade. And uh, then he spent the next 40 years there. Uh, all right. So were there, were there any... Interesting, uh, interesting, interesting. Two interesting aspects about that, I remember as a kid. One was Werner von Braun's assistant, Hohenner, who former SS officer, was in my father's working group. Uh, and I remember a party where my mother kicked him out of the house for uh, saying that Hitler did a really good job at the beginning. That really um, got me thinking about the sort of military um, aspect of, of American society. And uh, the second was when we were integrating, you know, it, where I was living in Maryland, we had uh, strong segregation. So African-Americans weren't allowed into swimming pools or restaurants or buses or anything like that. And uh, so in high school, we organized demonstrations. And I remember, you know, fights and all that. And I remember the FBI coming to my father's house, uh, my house, and saying, you know, your son shouldn't be involved in, in, in these kinds of things. And my father, who worked a lot for the defense industry um, and was a Republican at the time, now he's a flaming Democratic liberal. Uh, he's still alive at 95, World War II veteran. He... Uh, said to the FBI, my son will do whatever he wants. And my attitude towards my father changed, right? A little bit like Mark Twain's attitude towards his father. The older um, Mark Twain became, the smarter his father became. So those were, those were events that really had a long impact. Uh, maybe a third one was that one of the guys who worked with my father who was uh, director of weapon systems development, was a guy named Jake Beezer, who was the only one who flew both atomic bomb missions over Nagasaki and Hiroshima. And my talks with him as a kid, interviewing him for you know high school papers and stuff, was also very interesting uh, about what, what the stakes were in the war and uh, what life and death meant to people who were fighting in the war. While the Vietnam War was going on, that was very important to me as well. Yeah. So then uh, you went to Columbia for undergraduate and you initially planned to study mathematics. So was that sort of following in your, your father's footsteps or did you know that you were going to be more, become more socially conscious based off of those, those activities? What did that look like? Well, I got a scholarship from Westinghouse, you know, to study mathematics basically. Um, and I was interested in abstract mathematics, what's called category theory as a kid. Well, I was 16, 17 at the time. Um, because it, it, it opened up universes of thought um, beyond what's readily available to what you see. And I enjoyed that. But this was, you know, 67, 68. This was a time of uh, turmoil, upheaval, and young people breaking free. Uh, no longer, well, it started in the 50s, but young people no longer expected to or considering to do what their parents had done or expected them to do, perhaps the first generation like that. And uh, when I went to Columbia, my advisor was a guy named Serge Blank, who was one of the great algebraists of the time. He had just come from Berkeley, 
where he was heavily involved in leftist politics. So as my advisor, we got to get along very well together. And he encouraged me in demonstrating. This was Columbia in 68, 69, right? So there were demonstrations going on all the time. In fact, when we took over the president's office, he was quite supportive. But then I met Margaret Mead, who was yelling at us, saying, that, boy, you know, young men and women, this is not the way to do things. Uh, you should you should try to change your political system, work with your teachers, or work with your congressman, representative, who thought she was full of, was full of shit, actually. And I, I remember I was in the striped red and white blue pants and a top hat, a Lincoln-like top hat and a tank top. And, you know, I'm 17 years old and I thought I knew everything. And she said to me, uh, well, young man, seems like you have things you want to get off your chest and talk about. Why don't you, by the way, do you need a job? Which I sort of came out of left field. And I said, uh, I don't know. She said, well, come up to my office and uh, we can discuss this. So I figured, why not? Well, no, first I went to her, her class, Culture and Communication, uh, at Columbia at night. And it was fascinating. I mean, there were people like Norman Mailer in the class and all sorts of crazy characters. Uh, and when I went to her office, which was a tower, the top of a tower in the Museum of Natural History in New York City, it was like the Tower of Alibaba. I mean, it was... It was... <laughs> The strangest place I'd ever been in, and the most exciting. There was a there was a giant room in the tower, circular room, full of little cardboard boxes labeled in pencil, and each box had a skull, and the skulls dated from the time of the Spartacus Revolution through the mutiny on the bounty. He had all the this was Harry Shapiro's room. He was a physical anthropologist. He had all the bounty survivors' skulls. And it went, it went through to modern times, you know, classified racially, Eskimos, um, Zuni Indians, whatnot. So I was, I would open these boxes and do my Hamlet thing. And then uh, she just let me explore. There was a exhibit from Oceania. There was Quaquetal Indian boats and effigies, uh, Zulu spears. Uh, and then she said, well, I have to go out and just could you answer the phone? And she had several assistants, but for some reason she wanted me to answer the phone. And I got a call, of, I believe it was a second call, it was from Andy Warhol, who wanted to appear in some film, Elysium Fields, where she had to be naked with Salvador Dali. So when she came back, she asked me what, what phone calls I had. I was a little embarrassed, even though I was a revolutionary. And she she. I told her and she said, well, find out more. And I said, aha, this is the job for me. And then she said, well, I'll tell you what, I can pay you. I had a scholarship at Columbia, but it was not enough really to barely feed myself. And she said, well, she could pay me so much a week. I think it was 80 a week at the time. And uh, if I would help, you know, researching her autobiography. So I started reading her letters and poems going back into the 1920s. Uh, her adventures when she first went out to the Arapesh in New Guinea in 1925 or 6, where they dressed her up a pig because she was the first white woman they had ever seen. And the only other white things that were living they saw were these pigs. And they put her in this 
and they didn't she didn't know whether she'd be eaten or not and i think this is an intrepid woman and uh her letters from the 1940s when um the United States was at war and British anthropologists who had been her friends, all the famous Edmund Leach, who was in Burma and Jack Goody, who was in Cyprus, uh, fighting the Germans, uh, escaping from prisoner camps, were writing her, trying to get her to get the American Air Force to airdrop supplies for their guerrillas. So all these British anthropologists working on the colonial system had also been guerrilla leaders because they knew the cultures of these places. So she would uh, have them airlifted supplies. And then for years later, they would ask her for things. I remember Jeffrey Gore asking her for size 42 underwear from Brooks Brothers, which was my job to get. <laughs> and uh, it was just a fascinating, fascinating uh, experience. And I decided, okay, I'm going to be an anthropologist because there could be no more life, more unexpected, more surprising, and more risky. I can totally understand how you draw that inference looking at uh, looking at Margaret Mead and be like, well, whatever she's doing, I'll have some of that. That's right. That's incredible. It was pretty much that. Then I read, I was in a, uh, um, so in anthropology in those days, you had to know four disciplines. You had to know linguistics so that if you were parachuted into the field, you could transcribe the language and understand it. So you had to know syntactic structures and semantics. You had to know physical anthropology, human biology. You had to know archeology. span What's the history of this place? How far does it go back? What evidence of different cultural um, influences have there been in the place you happen to be going to? And cultural anthropology, which then was concentrated on basically observing what people are doing but first getting to know what their kinship system is, uh, what their political organization is, how economic life is built up. So uh, in the linguistics course, I decided to take a phonetics class because who knows where I was going to go and uh, what language I would have to um, transcribe and whether I could even hear it. So I decided to take phonetics as the first linguistic course. It was a teacher named Lars Alvar Jacobson, a Swede. And uh, he assigned as a reading phonetics by Halley and Chomsky and then syntactic structures by Chomsky. And when I aspects of the theory of syntax and when I read aspects of the theory of syntax, it was the most eye opening revelatory thing I'd ever read in my life. Here was someone who took a mathematical rigor and applied it to understanding a critical aspect of, of human mind, of what makes human life possible. And again, the only rigorous attempt to do this, not rigorous in, in the sense of uh, trying to be logical or coherent, but actually trying to model this thing under certain kinds of theoretical assumptions about an innate linguistic uh, device and things like that. So I was absolutely fascinating. I, I had never read anything like it, and I'd never been excited by anything that I had read uh, by it. And um, so I went to Mead, and I said, wow, this is really... Because by then I was her assistant, you know. 
And I said, this is really surprising and interesting. And, and, and now I'm not so sure because Mead had been with Franz Boas and Ruth Benedict at the forefront of the anti-fascist movements back in the 1920s and 30s when fascism was taking over Europe and racism and supremacism were still rampant. And their approach, which was, I think, very effective and poorly understood today, was let's look at the diversity of human experience. And their general take on things was that people really aren't that very different from one another innately, and they learn to be different culturally under different cultural influences. Uh, people like Steve Pinker and others who are also sort of friends, they took that the wrong way and said she was just anti-evolutionary theory, which wasn't a fact at all. Um, but she was skeptical about to the extent there were these innate devices that Chomsky was was proposing. And his influence was 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 growing very rapidly in the 60s and was affecting philosophy, um, linguistics, anthropology, psychology, neuroscience, virtually any field in the humanities. And um, I had also been reading Jean Piaget, who had a very different take on things, that young children learn through a series of progressions uh, their culture. And this series of progressions is universal, but there's nothing in terms of a sort of innate set of devices that are universal. His argument was that in interacting with the world, there's a set of stages you go through from sensory motor on, and uh, there was no such thing as an innate linguistic device or an innate geometrical uh, perception or things like that. And then there was Levi-Strauss, who Claude Levi-Strauss, an anthropologist who um, started out as a philosopher and um, just by chance, because there was an opening in Brazil in 1936 for an anthropologist, took up the job and went to Brazil and went as far as he could into the Amazon until he couldn't understand anybody anymore. That was his take. And then to work himself back from what he thought to be the sort of origins of humanity back to who we are today. And to try to come up with some kind of way of understanding this. And he did this through trying to understand the structure of myth and how myth relates all peoples in the world, and especially in the Americas. Myth, structure of myths for him, for the Americas, was like history for the West. We know who we are in the West through our history, which is a linear thing. And his argument was, we can know all of humanity, but let's first concentrate on the Americas through the structure of their myths as they transform across the continents and move from society to society. And he also had a very different take. His argument was, well, there are three people who have really influenced me, uh, Freud, uh, Marx, and Durkheim. And he saw himself as the confluence of these three great thinkers. Okay, so there were these three very different takes on what is the basic sort of structure or framework of human nature. And um, 
I'm telling you all this because you want to know the origins of it all, right? Um, I happened to be reading at the time Bertrand Russell's book, Human Knowledge at Scope and Limits, which I was also fascinated by, but it was almost the opposite of Chomsky's take. It was a very Humean argument that through experience, we learn to build the worlds we learn in. So I said to Margaret, listen, I'm really confused about what all of these things seem so fascinating to me, and they can't all be right. So I would really like to discuss with these people um, what this is all about. She said, okay, great. Why don't you do it? I said, how do I go about it? And she said, well, apply for something, apply for some money to do it somewhere. And she said, well, remember, when you apply for something, always understand everything about the lives of the people who are going to decide the award and who you're applying to. So know everything about that. <laughs> so uh, I said, so what do you suggest? She said, well, you could try the Ford Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation. So I applied to the Rockefeller Foundation. I got a grant to organize a meeting. And then they found out I was just an undergraduate and they withdrew the grant, which made me very, very upset. And then I decided I'm just going to go and talk to them and see if they'll meet. And I remember Tom Bever, a psychology professor, who was a student of Chomsky's at Columbia at the time, said, you're never going to get no one to go to a conference again. I said, well, maybe, um, but, you know, I had written to him and he seems to respond to, uh, to young people. He still does, by the way. I mean, we're still sort of friends and he responds to young people all the time. <laughs> um, so I went to Boston, to Cambridge, to see him. And it just so happened that I had Bertrand Russell's book in my, in my bag. And, uh, I said to him, well, you know, these these questions really bother me and I really don't know the answer. And I'd like to just see as we as everybody discusses it, you know, what might be right and what might be wrong and what might be a mystery or questionable. And he says, huh. And he goes, um, well, what do you, what what's in your bag? <laughs> and I pull out Russell's book. And he looks over to his wall, and there's Bertrand Russell. He has two posters, one of Fidel Castro with a little kid in fields in Cuba, and the other of Bertrand Russell saying, there are three things um, overwhelming in my life, uh, the need to be loved, the search for knowledge, and the unbearable pity I have for the suffering of mankind. And, um, sorry, let me turn. I think that was the spirit of Bertrand Russell adding a little flourish to to the the quote there. Yeah, and I said, and he looks at me and says, well, Russell's one of my favorite thinkers. I said, but he thinks so so differently from you. Like, either he's wrong or you're wrong. I said, yes, this is true. But at least he thought deeply about things, and there was no artifice to the way he thought. And he brought his view of empiricism to its greatest and most logical extent. And if you can, if you can, if you can counter that, he said, then you can get some real understanding. 
so then he looks over me and says, okay, when do you want to do this and where? And I said, I'm not quite sure. And he opens up his notebook. This was like April. He says, okay, I really don't have any time till the next century, but um, I could make three days in October 2000, uh, 1974. Two days, three days, he said. I said, okay. So the conference was scheduled for those three days in October that the times he had said were available. And it was an incredible event. Um, I remember Monod saying, um, well, there was Descartes and now there's Chomsky, which I thought was incredible for the head of the PESTA. <laughs> and Piaget saying, well, if I was a student now, I would probably be your student, he said to Chomsky. Chomsky's response, by the way, was that's irrelevant to the discussion because Chomsky was at his most critical and ungracious time of his life, which I thought was terrific, by the way, and allowed absolutely no slippage in terms of coherence and logic. I remember René Tom, a great mathematician, uh, one of the originators of cat catastrophe theory, trying to give some kind of form, formal uh, description of how a sort of Piagetian uh, jumping from sensory motor intelligence to others' intelligence could happen mathematically and showing these catastrophic movements and these um, um, shifting over precipices, sort of intellectual precipices are possible. And I remember Chomsky looking at at the, at the mathematics of it and going, yes, and asking questions. And he goes, and this has been proved, yes. Can you show me the proof? Yes. And then they're going on and on and on. And Tom goes, and this is this is the way it is. And Chomsky goes, the mathematics are really stunning, but it has absolutely nothing to do with what anybody's talking about here. This is pure blah, blah. This is pure speculation. Fodor jumping in. Well, Fodor was there, too, as sort of Chomsky's hatchet man going, yes, this is all nonsense, you know. And I remember Anthony Wilden so frustrated standing on the table putting up his hands going chomsky is a fascist he's a fascist and then chomsky going okay and everybody wants me to shut up raise their hands <laughs> it was just out of control bateson who was barefoot as he always is this big hulking barefoot guy sort of slovenly but adorable was just trying to bridge the gap and chomsky was allowing none of it he goes no 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 he goes I'll tell you. I'll tell you what um, this theory is of sensory motor intelligence, sort of Piaget's theory. He goes. He goes. Okay, what you're saying basically is this: if you're sitting in a room and move your head and have a brilliant insight into physics or mathematics, then it's sensory motor intelligence is the origins of this. He says, of course, that's nonsense. Which time Piaget would sort of intervene and say, well, you know, sensory motor intelligence requires bodily coordination and you need that kind to be able to perceive the world. And Thomas is going, look, we're sitting in the room with chairs. You're pointing to a green book, but that has nothing to do with the chair. And this is the way the whole, <laughs> the whole conference ran. Meanwhile, Levi Strauss, who is a beautiful illustrator, is drawing characters with Francois Jacob 
saying nothing, neither of those two guys, um, of all the participants. Levi Strauss making them into cats, okay? <laughs> Each of the participants is a different cat. And Francois Jacob, an amazing mind, by the way, doing um, pencil figures, but just with one line, never letting the pencil go, right? And making characters. And I'm sitting between them and just wondering what they're thinking about all this because they're they're saying nothing. And of course, as the conference ends, I'm sort of devastated because Chomsky seemed to me uh, to have the only answer, coherent answers to any of the questions. And if that's true, then everything I had believed was basically wrong. And most of the people that I was listening to were wrong. And as the conference ended, people were fighting as Chomsky, as as Levi Strauss and Jacob left the table, were fighting over their their drawings. So I I went home devastated, back to my apartment in Paris, where I was living with some crazy Mexicans. Um, and I decided, well, there's really nothing to do until I can come up with something interesting on my own. So to hell with school but I still needed money. So I applied for a sort of odyssey trip to Colombia, and they gave me something called a president's fellow, which basically is three years funding and you do what you want. Life was very different then. <laughs> so I um, decided to go with my friends to, uh, we just picked up a minivan and um made beds and bookcases and stuff out of uh, garbage from Amsterdam, which is very clean garbage. And we decided to drive to China and um, see what see what comes of it. And um, that's what we did. We went, we drove to China overland. We had many, many, many adventures and the Mexicans burned my books in Afghanistan uh because it was taking up too much room and we had a fight over a a tapeworm hidden in a vodka bottle that's an, <laughs> another story but afghanistan fascinated me and i decided that that that's where i was going to do field work because this was the strangest place i'd ever been alexander the great had been there i remember coming into herat and i was the i was the guy my friend jorge he was the the cook for the trip and Fernando, another Mexican, he was the driver. And as a guide, I was giving them the whole history of these places and what had happened. And so Alexander the Great had made this great palace in Herat and we were looking for it. And finally we got someone to understand what we were talking about. And he said, just follow the smell. And so we followed the smell and it turned out that this beautiful, enormous palace had become the sort of shittery of Herat. This is where people went to um, take a dump. So that sort of put history in perspective for me, especially in Afghanistan. I also remember in Mazar Sharif walking through the bazaar and watching the people who had been double amputated for stealing had a little guild. They had no hands, but they would make kebab with their feet. And this gave me a, a very different view of, of humanity <laughs> than I had been accustomed to in the West or even the Middle East where I had been. And so I decided I wanted to do 
my field work there. Um, but then the Russians came. By the way, we, we went through Afghanistan with some maps that a Russian colonel had given us, who then found a lover on the Ile Saint-Louis, who owned a bookstore, who had also been the lover of Jorge, this Mexican guy. And his name was Tomalchov. And he he gave us, he had made maps of where they were burying gasoline and diesel fuel for when the Russians were going to come. Okay, they weren't there yet. They were building a highway from to Kandahar from the Russian border. And he was telling us, what do you think? You know, four-lane cement highway is because they need that for donkeys? No, he goes, they need it for tanks. And there was this popular film from before the Russians are coming. Right? It was like, the Russians are coming. The Russians are coming. Mark my words, we're coming. But we had all this free gasoline because we dug it up as we went through Afghanistan. Um. Well, there were many adventures on that road. Uh, I discovered the power of religion uh, in Rawalpindi when I was sitting, I had a fever, and I was also eating pomegranates with chili peppers in the market. And some guy comes up to me out of nowhere and goes, what nationality are you? And I go, uh, I'm an American. And he goes, ah, what religion are you? And I go, well, I really don't have a religion. He goes, you must have a religion. You must be Christian or Muslim or Jewish or Buddhist. You must have some religion. And I said, no, 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 no. And he goes, you can not have a religion. He goes, it's impossible. And I said, well, he goes, tea kettles have no religion. And I go, yeah. And I said, well, maybe cockroaches have religion. That was the wrong thing to say. Because, <laughs> because he disappears. And then I hear this rumbling in the background. And I'm eating my pomegranate, sweating like a pig. And a rock hits my head. And I'm looking down. There's blood flowing down. The, and then this crowd starts throwing stones at me, this huge crowd. And the guy, they are going, he is worse than a dog. He is called God like cockroach. He is worse than a dog. He must die. And then the two Mexicans who had been off shopping in the bazaar for rugs come running out. He goes, no, 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 no. He's out of his mind. He's got malaria. He's very, very sick. He doesn't, don't believe a thing he says. And so they, they stop for a second. And then a guy in a military uniform, big guy in a military, comes out, looks at me, and he goes, yes, he's definitely sick, very, very sick. We must take him to the hospital. And so we get into the hospital, and I say, what, what, what do you think I have? And he goes, I have no idea. I'm a dentist. <laughs> but he got me out of there, saved my life. But then I realized the power of religion. No logical argument was going to be sufficient to convince people to believe in God or not to believe in God. And uh, then I, I was informed I got a Fulbright scholarship to go to Syria. And I had to fly back to Paris. Um, I can't remember why the Fulbright required me to fly back to Paris, but I had to get to Paris. It's a long story about how I got back to Paris. Um, and then I went to Syria just as Sadat 
was coming to Jerusalem. And so I was taken to the border. I was, I think, the first Fulbright scholar I'd gone into Syria at the time, and or the last, because as Sadat came to Jerusalem, they took me to the border of Lebanon and said, good luck, we're lucky we don't kill you. Well, Lebanon at the time was in the middle of a civil war, and there was really, <laughs> it wasn't really a place to be either, because people were really shooting one another and killing one another. I mean, it was a really crazy place at the time. Um, people, I remember being in a building in Beirut and people shooting and say, you want me to get this one? You want me to get that one? I said, no, please don't get anybody. Why don't you just have a drink with me? Let's talk about this. And then they would go to nightclubs at night and dance with the people they were shooting during the day. It was really a crazy place. And I decided I had to get out of there as soon as possible. So I went to Israel and I decided to work with the Druze because they lived in all three countries and all three countries accepted them, Lebanon, Syria, and Israel. And how they managed to do that and to become sort of very well accepted in all three societies was a mystery for me. What is it about them? What is it about their strange religion and history? And so I spent the next couple of years with the Druze. And when I thought I began to know them, I had originally been able to get into their society because I had read some books that Sylvester de Sassi had written with Napoleon, when Napoleon's army had come into the area. They had, they had gone into the Helwe, which were the sacred places of the Druze, and brought back some of their sacred texts. These I had read, so I knew what to do when I got into a Druze community, how to address them, what kinds of words to use. So I was pretty much accepted. But then after about a year and a half, they said, and of course, you will never write anything about us. Um, this was going to be my dissertation, right? So I said, just Hell. for just for clarity, so you um, are you in PhD at Columbia right now, or did you finish? You did yes. a master's at Johns Hopkins, and right now you are in. Oh, I did a yeah, I did do a master's at Johns Hopkins. Um, yeah. Uh, but so you're working. You're you're a PhD student. Uh, all of this was was at some point along the line. You decided to go yes. back to Columbia and work with Margaret Mead uh, for your PhD. Yeah, I decided to work with Margaret and some others. There was Bob Murphy. There was Marvin Harris. There was um, um, Conrad Ahrensberg, great anthropologist, old style, knew everything about everything. And so you were um, working on your dissertation field work research and a year and a half into it, uh, the guy's like, right. right. And by the way, you know, you can't disclose any of this. That's right. So I, what am I going to do? So I remember going back to see my girlfriend in Paris and going to a flea market in Vanf, which is on the suburbs of Paris, southern suburbs, and walking through the flea market and seeing a set of books old books. My aunt had died and left me uh, a few thousand dollars. And these books were from uh, about 1500 all the way through to the modern times. It was basically the history of natural history. But the originals, Linnaeus's books, Courier's books, uh, John Ray's books, Caspar Bowen's books, not only did it fascinate me that these were old books, 500 years old, some of them, but that it told a story. And I asked the guy, how, how did you get these books to sell in this flea market? And he says, well, a pharmacist died who happened to be 
a fanatic about the history of drugs and natural history and pharma, phar, pharmacopoeia. And he had collected these and he died. He had no relatives. They sold this at auction and I got it for, you know, so much. So I said, well, how much would this collection cost me? And he goes, I'll give it to you for 20,000 francs, which was about 4,000 bucks at the time. I said, I'll take it. So I took these books with me back to this Druze village. And I just spent my days still talking to the Druze, but sitting in the village, reading these books, trying to teach myself Greek and Latin so that I could translate them. Um, then buying on my own Aristotle's books and Theophrastus's books. And so my dissertation turned out to be the foundations of natural history and biology. And so I wrote back to my dissertation. Margaret had died in the meantime in 78. I wrote back to Alex, Alan, and Bob Murphy, my dissertation advisors, and I said, well, I think this is going to be an interesting subject. Um, and Tom Bever, a psychologist. Um, and so I'd like to do this. They said, fine. But I really don't want to come back to the United States right now. Can we meet in Paris? And they said, all right, let's meet in Paris. So we had a my defense in Paris at the Coupole, this restaurant. And I remember they said, okay, all right. I mean, you haven't finished it, uh, but we see where it's going. Uh, you'll, you'll get it. But it took me two more years, actually, to write it all down on paper. So then I got my... Uh, my 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 doctorate and um then i went to uh work in france at the uh, museum of natural history uh, and then i decided to go to the middle east there was an opening in jerusalem for uh, uh, um i i want to ask a question before, since we're wrapping up the margaret mead um portion why which is, yeah. uh, I was just curious to know if you've seen uh, the recent book by Charles King, Gods of the Upper Air. Yes. Uh, and because uh, you mentioned that Franz Boas and his students, such as Margaret Mead, have often been in uh, misinterpreted and, and poorly understood. And so I was wondering if, if you think that that, uh, you know, did a, a better job of representing the way. Yes, you they did. Was. Yes, he did. Much better job of representing. Really the, the, the misinterpretation came from Derek Freeman, who was an Australian anthropologist who had gone to Samoa and talked to some of the women yeah. who had been young girls when Margaret was there and said that they fabricated stuff and she just took them at their word and got it all wrong. Um, and Margaret had been, I remember his letters, he, he would ask Margaret questions and Margaret would always respond to him. And then when she died, he came out with this book and people bought into it. And I thought it was just disgraceful to tell you the truth. Um, but there was a need in the intellectual community at the time uh, when when sort of a Chomsky and a Chomsky and take had been brought into a, to a rebirth of evolutionary theory and psychology and anthropology, especially psychology, and in a few anthropology departments in Arizona, uh, University of Arizona, UCLA. And so they they reacted against what they thought was this um anti-evolutionary aspect but i remember um margaret always being a fan of darwin and uh, just it wasn't her thing to find out what were the evolutionary uh 
universals, um, which he certainly never had, a, as far as I could take, an anti-evolutionary bias. And uh, she's, in fact, I've written to Steve many times with, you know, letters from her and saying that, you know, what you wrote in, uh, in some of your books is just nonsense. And what people have been saying is just, uh, is just nonsense. So, yeah, I think the King book is much better take on what they were up to. And, and you have to remember the times. I mean, this was a time when fascism and supremacism were rearing up their ugly head and with dire consequences. And, these were some of the people trying to show that this just wasn't the case scientifically. Yeah. And so their argument wasn't about trying to promote evolutionary theory. Besides Chomsky himself thought the whole movement in evolutionary psychology was bunk, still believes it's bunk. He says, everybody, you know, I, in fact, I've got a whole folder here, a book of conversations with uh, Maynard Smith and uh, Dennett and all, which I'm only going to publish some other time where Chomsky's basically saying, these guys, they just fell off the wrong side of the bed one day. He goes, this is all nonsense. He goes, these are stories people make up. He goes, first of all, if you really want to do, I don't know if you want me to go on to this, but if you really want to... Yeah, wait, wait. So I, I, if we get down um, Chomsky's disagreements with various schools of people, that's going to, that will be, like you said, that's a book on its own. Uh, yes. I'm interested to, to go back to... Uh, so you were working in Paris, and then that's yeah. when you really got started um, uh, toward the going toward the Middle East. Yeah, so I I, I um, wrote a paper. I should I wrote a paper. Um, on the role of affinity, which is um, conjugal relationships, affinal relationships, as opposed to consanguineal relationships in structuring Middle East societies. And uh, people like that. And so I was eventually um, admitted into the CNLS, which is the National Center for Scientific Research, which is very difficult to get into, especially if you're a foreigner, and mostly because of politics. Everybody wants their particular person in there and there were very few slots and still are because it's a lifetime job and there's really no obligations you write over two-page report once a year that's it for the rest of your life um and there was a fight between different factions and i sneaked through because i had written this paper that some people liked and i had no political faction uh, behind me so i i did get in uh, working on on the Middle East, I had been living in the Middle East for a while when I was had that Fulbright, and um, then I decided to accept a position in the Center for French Research in Jerusalem, which had an opening. And the reason I wanted that was I wanted to go back to the Middle East, but also um, they pay three times your salary. It's a, it was a colonial regime, which has since ended. But if you go to the sticks as a French civil servant, you get three times your salary. So I thought this was this was the thing to do because eventually I wanted to buy my house on the Riviera, right? Still in the back of my mind is Cary Grant fantasy, even though I'm no Cary Grant. Um, and so I 
I, 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 I did a lot of research on the early history of Zionist settlements on the land systems in Palestine. And I had an appointment as a visiting professor at the Hebrew University at the Truman Institute. But at the same time, I was teaching in Bir Zayt, which is the Palestinian university, which had which was clandestine. It had been closed down because it was the Intifada. So I was going back and forth across the green line, uh, often through burning tires and rock throwing and things like that. But my girlfriend at the time, and is my wife now, she's a Chilean. And so we had this big Chilean flag. No one really knew what it meant, but it allowed us to go back and forth across the green line. And uh, I did a lot of research on the history of Palestinian land systems and early Jewish settlements and uh, wrote a lot of papers about it and uh, sort of had a great rapport on both sides. That is, I remember I had as my assistants um, leaders of the Muslim brothers who became the Hamas. And to this day, I have very good relationships with them. But I also was working with people from Shamir's office, who is a right-wing Likud president, a prime minister. The problem was, was I would bring some of the, <laughs> some of the, my assistants into the president's office. There was problems because we'd always be, um, interrogated for quite quite an amount of time but i i got a feeling for both sides and i got uh i think a fairly good knowledge of what was going on in the world and what had been going on in the world and the tragedy uh from both sides uh, and then my wife well my girlfriend at the time said to me look i can't take this anymore it's two years we've been here all they do is fight all the time they shoot one another, they throw Molotov cocktails, they break bones, and it's a beautiful city. I really like the country. I like both sides, but I'm going to my part of the world. You can come or you can stay. So um, meanwhile, my Mexican friends from Paris, who I'd been living with before that trip to China, I'd been writing me. One was a, and a family of uh, woodcutters, wood business. And he had a falling out with his brother and his brother said, okay, forget Mexico. Why don't you open up the wood industry in the jungles of Guatemala? Okay. So he brought in bulldozers and trucks and built the first roads into the Petén, which is the lowland rainforest of Guatemala, which just so happened to be where the last Maya had been conquered. And the Petén had been relatively isolated. It was a third of Guatemala. It was rainforest. And there were only um, 20,000 people, while there were 11 million people in the other two-thirds, which was overcrowded, um, highland, mostly highland Maya, uh, and they were being pushed off the coffee plantations. And so they were starting to migrate into the lowlands. Now, the military had kept them out up to this point, but then they decided to open up when the new president, Cereso, had come in. Just so happens that Cereso's son, Marco Antonio, was an anthropologist, and he wanted to for me to speak to his father and show him how important it was to get the culture going and to prevent the forest from being burned. Anyway, this confluence of interests occurred so that I decided I was going to go uh, and find out about the Maya, especially this Itza group. And when we went the first time, they wouldn't speak Maya. It was called, you know, they had been jailed and beaten for speaking it. 
And so we began a process of transliterating the language, doing grammars, um, doing the things anthropologists do, right? Doing the kinship system, the myths, the stories. Um, and I was very much interested through my natural history days of figuring out what their take on the flora and fauna was. And because of my belief in universals, uh, realizing that people everywhere basically classify plants and animals in the same way. I mean, basically species and genetics and higher order groups. And this formal structure of taxonomies fascinated me because they're not just hierarchies. They're classes of classes, logical classes. For instance, a lemon tree and a, um, and a chicken have no hierarchical relationship, but they belong to the same conceptual category, which is a species, right? So this, this, this very abstract structure, which applied to the concrete perception of reality, was able to divide up the biodiversity of the world in almost the same ways for everybody, fascinated me. And I decided, well, how can we wed the sort of knowledge of diversity and strangeness and difference of these people with this universal aspect of it? Cody here. If you're hearing this, then my guest and I probably just finished talking about the books that have most influenced their way of thinking. This is always one of my favorite questions. One reason is because a person's favorite books, or a smattering of the ones that come to mind at any rate, is such an interesting portrait of the way they think. But it's also a great way to find new books. There are so many books out there, especially ones that seem hot right now. But let's face it, not every one of them is going to really change the way you think about something important. One of the most effective ways to find those high-value titles is to read the things that have been most impactful to the people you admire or look up to. Speaking personally, after these interviews, I often find myself ordering the books we talked about or other books by the author that I may not have read prior to our conversation. And so I've started compiling book lists based on each episode of Cognitive Revolution. Each list collects a few of the books we talked about, any notable works by the author, and whatever else I thought would fit nicely with the rest. I appreciate you listening to Cognitive Revolution, and I genuinely hope you get something out of these conversations. If you do, I have no doubt some of these books will also be of interest to you. Instead of asking for money to support this podcast through Patreon or some other service, I'm asking you to buy a book. My book lists are hosted through bookshop.org. If you're in the US or UK, you can buy a book on my list, or actually any available book, and 10% of your purchase goes to supporting this podcast. You can find my list at bookshop.org slash shop slash cognitive revolution. That's bookshop.org slash shop slash lowercase cognitive revolution. In the UK, it is uk.bookshop.org slash shop slash cognitive revolution. Buying a book through these lists is the best way to support the Cognitive Revolution podcast, so please check them out and see if anything catches your eye. I have a question. Can I interject yeah. here? So it sort of goes back to what your what your girlfriend and future wife said, which is like, okay, we've been hanging out here. I'm tired of everyone shooting each other, and I'm I'm gonna go back home. And I guess I it's sort of um, I feel like that is representative of a lot of your experiences in some way, and that you find yourself in a lot of places people are shooting each other. And like when you when you retailed the story about the rock getting the rocks you getting stoned by the uh, you know uh, 
religious people, you sort of told that story with like a, gee, isn't that wonderful? Uh, not a like, oh my gosh, I almost died. It was sort of like, you know, oh, wow, isn't that kind of delightful? So I, I'm curious, what's your take on what draws you to these places that are ultimately very violent? You have to get through pretty much everywhere you've ever gone. You have to get through the militia to get to wherever, you know, the people who you want to study are, who often sometimes are the militia. So what do you make of that? Well, for me, I think life is the value of, of life is is the risk you're willing to take. And so, I mean, I... I, I try not to put myself directly in harm's way, although I do wind up there sometimes. And I always kick myself for being stupid enough to be in that place, especially when I think I'm finished and I say, I deserve this dumb moron. Uh, is that what you tell me. yourself as you're about to like die some fiery, you know, violent death? Is you dumb? Yeah, up in Kashmir when I was, uh, well, I can get to that. I mean, I had, had to hide under an Al-Qaeda, Lashkar Taibi mosque while people were out after me. And I'm sitting there with my pen knife under the floorboards and a flashlight going, you dumb shit. You deserve every bit of this. <laughs> Till I heard some woman. This is up in Azad Kashmir, right? This is up right after the earthquake, 2006, 56. And then I hear some woman at three o'clock in the morning saying, you can you can dance with them. You can dance with them, but you in English, but you can't kiss them. And I'm going, wow, what is this? And she actually saved my life, I think. Well, anyway, um, back to where we were. Where were we? We were. You had uh, you know just alluded to the, your your book on the the cognitive foundations of national hi- natural history. Natural history, yeah, and we did a lot of work about that. We wrote a book for MIT Press. I wrote a book, Cambridge. Uh, um, on the foundations of biological thinking in human beings and how the science of biology started from this sort of common sense basis. What was it? <laughs> you know, how did Darwin, for example, um, build upon this sort of common root? I think Alfred Russell Wallace had a, a lot of insight into how that was done, and that fit very well with what I had found and some others had found with how indigenous peoples uh, classify nature. But then we were interested in how this ability of these four and five-year-olds, for example, to grasp nature in this intricate way, was degenerating. It was as if it was as if you have the language faculty and you have labile nerves ready to pick up on any language, and all of a sudden you're denied all sound, and so these these the synapses just don't connect anymore, and you lose it, and. This seemed to be what was generally happening um, in industrialized societies. And that also made me very skeptical about all the cultural work in psychology. You know, they were comparing Japanese and Chinese to Europeans and Americans and seeing these great cultural divides. And I'm saying, like, these are trivial things. I mean, really trivial. And they were saying, no, well, the Westerners, in fact, very good friends of mine, like like Dick Nisbet, Nara, Manoai students, Noran Zion, they and, and 
Shinobu Kitayama, all of these, and 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 Hazel Marcus, all these people who are in this and seeing these tremendous cultural differences, and they're they're my friends, and I, you know, we're arguing, and I'm saying these guys, these these differences seem to me really trivial, and I said the proof is these guys are supposed to think very differently, right? These Asians, the non-categorical, and all of this stuff. Well, why is it? that they are the majority of our mathematics department. They had never been in America and they're dominating it and they're thinking very categorically. I mean, if these were deep things, they wouldn't in an instant. And I said, I bet you all I can, all I would need to do is say, okay, think categorically and any of these people would. And I can say to an American, think thematically and they would do it just as fast as a Chinese. It's just that this was some relatively minor cognitive style. These didn't seem to be deep differences, and to this day, they don't seem to be differences, uh, deep differences. And I also have problems with individualism being born in Greece. Forget that. I mean, if you look at Aristotle and uh, Alexander, I mean, Alexander, every time there was some problem in his army, he would kill the family because no individual was um, important. It was the family, and this was true of Roman as well. Anyway. I won't go into my arguments on individualism and the so-called uh, cultural divide between Asians and Western Europeans. All this thing to be in a homogenization. And I remember I was supposed to go with Margaret back to uh, New Guinea in 78, just before she died. And um, because she wanted to find out really what was happening. And then I remember one of the people we had been in contact with about our visit uh, was writing me that Pokemon dolls were rampant throughout New Guinea now. And I'm going, geez, this is, that's really important because what that's telling me is that within a generation, this is all going to be gone and there's going to be a homogenization of human experience. We're going to have nothing left of the type that classical anthropologists were interested in. And that's pretty much what has happened. I mean, when I was in the Paten, it would take me some time to cross the lake by canoe and then by horseback up into the up into the back country. And then if I had to make a telephone call, it'd take me four days to get back to make a telephone call. But now you're with your cell phone, you can call from any place ever else. It really makes a a huge difference. Oh man. I mean, uh gosh, I mean that's uh that definitely it makes me it makes me kind of sad that today that sort of thing is is, is no longer possible and it's uh, gone in it's the gone. Uh, sort of like academic literature on the history of higher education in America they refer to that period from essentially end of World War II uh, to about uh, seventy five as the golden age and this is when basically like you were talking about there was never a larger amount of money going into higher education that's where you know, really the, the great thinkers of, uh, you know, sort of post, post-war America uh, all came of age was in that, uh, you know, and like you said, you're sort of at the tail, the tail end of it before the, the, um, the gravy train uh, halted. But yeah, it's, it's an incredibly fascinating period. And I mean, it's just, it just is qualitatively different what academia was able to be like back then versus, you know, what it is today in, in the world that I am I am looking at uh, going forward, you know? I mean, I, I certainly wouldn't go into academia today. I mean, it, I find academia to be um, 
I, I, I don't know what to say. I, you know, I get maybe um, a dozen requests a week to review articles and comment on things. And it's very rare I'll accept to do anything like that. First, I don't feel the obligation that everybody says I should have. And second, I just find most of the articles I read boring. I mean, they're just incremental aspects of doing the same thing for the umpteenth time. And I'm against, uh, for example, pre-registering studies, which is now you, you sometimes you can't even be published unless you pre-register. Because I think academia for me is about going into the unknown. You don't know what you're going to find. You have ideas, you have intuitions, you even have theories that you're willing to test out, but you have no idea what the results are going to be. Well, that's, and, that's one uh, of the reasons why I don't really plan to go into academia is because ultimately right now, if what you really want to do is, is try and have a career in which you are rewarded for knowing things for what you might call scholarship or erudition or something in that, you know, if you want to put a high flute and word on it, academia is not the place, not, not the place to, to go. It's, it's, uh, it's, there's the pressure from all the different angles, whether it's financial or, uh, the, the culture of, of the academy and that sort of stuff, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't encourage, you know, scholarship in any, any meaningful sense. And so that's something that I'm trying to do is, is to figure out, well, what, you know, how do I want to interact with knowledge and how do I build a career out of that, which, you know, formerly would be thought of as, you know, just sort of straight ahead academia, but allows me to more directly spend a higher percentage of my time directly interfacing with knowledge and ideas and, and the stuff that I'm interested in. Uh, then, you know, if I were to become a professor, best case scenario is I spend 40% of my uh, you know, time answering email, 70% of my time writing grants, 50% of my time advising graduate students, and negative, uh, like 80% of my time working on research, you know? Yeah. Uh, so. And Oxford is a truly privileged place to do and get to know people. And it's, it's it still has the quirkiness that makes it a, a good place to be. But even at Oxford, I find you know, I, 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 I no longer accept to even advise students or be on dissertation committees unless it's something out in left field that someone's just willing to take a risk on. And again, I, I, I'm not interested in, in, in helping careers. It's not something that ever was meaningful to me. And it wasn't and again, I still this is an elitist attitude. It's something I'm sure was the case uh, more at Oxford before than it is now. Certainly was the place at Columbia and and, and where I was. And uh, well, you know, it's really other- kind of uh, you know a tragedy of my own life is uh, you know when, when I, uh, I I mentioned over email that you know that I have this sort of thing that I'm interested in, which how do we understand other people who are vastly different than ourselves? How do we make sense of people? come from different cultural or religion religious backgrounds whatever it is and i've got this basic you know idea that i call it the intuitive anthropologist in response to lee ross's uh, intuitive psychologist which is sort of like how the field has built off of this conception of how we understand others uh and instead of looking at psychology as the gold standard of how to understand others it's like okay well people who really are good at understanding people are different themselves certainly not psychologists who have studied undergraduates for most of the um field's history uh, it's anthropologists, right? That's that. Those people have committed to that. So, how do they do their thing? 
uh, let's look at that and let's build a, uh, you know, a model of, of what that looks like and, and see how that compares with how people actually go about understanding members of their outgroup. And this is just a concept uh, that I've, I've tried for, you know, a couple of years now to, to push uh, here and just ultimately have had to give up uh, because it just doesn't work as research here. Though it, you know, I don't think it's because it couldn't, but it just as logistics at, you know, trying to get a thesis done at Oxford, it's just not, it's not possible to do this. And so now I'm like, well, my advisor's got this nice little experiment and uh, now I'm doing a, you know, a little extension of that, like exactly what you're talking about with the, well, like, well, well, you know, again, now well. I'm extending that to the, the little thing. So, and that's, that is simply what I have to do in order to get, uh, you know, my, uh, my thesis done. And I have to, I, you know, I, you I wish I had 10 years it. to sort of dick around and, uh, you know, hang out with the Jews and read books. But, uh, I just, the, I just, the fact of the matter is, uh, as, uh, that's not the, the opportunity. Don't get in. You shouldn't get into that. Yeah. That what? Um, I mean, I, I plan to not make the same mistake twice and, uh, you know, I, I need to do this uh, to, to get through where I am right now, but it's a short-term thing. And then it's like, okay, I'm not going to get into a situation again where this is the, uh, the only way to be successful is to, to throw my lot into this, you know, much more minor endeavor than I would, would want to be drawn to, you know? What is the, what are you working on? Um, what am I actually working on now? Uh, for the thesis. Yeah, for the thesis, uh, basically, it's questions about when are we willing to exert effort to help other people or to particularly to understand other people. And um, so the the basic one of the things I was I was you know sort of interested in with the whole intuitive anthropologist thing is that the very one well, big very big difference between the way anthropologists think about things and, and psychologists is that for anthropology so for psychology it's a lot of here is the inference mechanism of, uh, you know, here's the, the, the model and, and the, the mathematics behind everything's happening here. For anthropology, a lot of the insight, the, the majority of the insight comes from, well, I was the one who went to the field, saw what they were up to, and came back and can reliably, reliably report on it. So it's about putting in effort. It's about motivation. It's about being willing to do the work of being there. Um, and that's where understanding comes from. So, so I have now much more lower level questions about, well, if you have an outgroup member versus an in-group uh, uh, you know, member, under what circumstances do you work harder for one versus the other? What are the dynamics of that? And a lot of, um, you know, to be honest, not very exciting experiments about, uh, you know, very tractable questions um, on, on, on those sort of things. What kind of question? Um, Give me an example. Yeah. So if <laughs> I don't really, I, I don't, I don't, I don't really feel like this is the most interesting thing for us to, to talk about, but, um, so the, okay, here's something slightly more interesting is, uh, so I've, I've run a bunch of experiments on, um, basically how target agent who you're working for reward levels so variation on if you're getting a low number of points just a high number of points uh and then uh, uh effort conditions how all of those sort of uh interact in these uh you know sort of trade-offs and, and models and this and that uh and so that's a question about how are we willing to uh exert cognitive or a physical effort to help other people 
And now the next phase of stuff that I'm going into, hopefully going to be uh, a little bit more dramatic, is when are we willing to exert cognitive effort to understand or to help other people? And uh, cognitive effort is, of course, uh, much harder to study than physical effort because physical effort is a very straightforward construct. Cognitive effort is not. Uh, and particularly, uh, we're trying to come up with a theory of mind task um, that uh, basically allows you to have... So one, one thing that's hard in, in theory of mind literature, how we make sense of the mental states of, of others, how we make inferences about those mental states, is that we know that people do it, and we know that you know it's like a skill, but there's no paradigm that says, well, this is a very hard version of a theory of mind uh, exercise, and this is a very easy version. It's always just like you either did the theory of mind or you didn't. Um, and so we're trying to come up with a scheme to make graded levels of um, theory of mind tasks. And these, I don't know, these graded levels, are they like, for example, um, levels of embedding of? No, because the problem with that is that then what you're doing is coming up with a more difficult reasoning task or a more difficult working memory task. So it's very hard to do this in principle to say what is happening with theory of mind um, that is difficult. That's not just working memory or just this or just that. Uh, if you want something that's actually, you can look at it and say, well, this, the, there's something theory of mindy about this. And so we have um, where basically the idea is that instead of having theoretical differences between stimuli, um, we create a situation in which there is natural variation on what's happening with the mental state agents within it. And then um, you present that to a, you know, uh, you know, a bunch of uh, participants or whatever. And then you say, you know, okay, first of all, answer the theory of mind question here. So there's an accuracy measure. And then how difficult was it, was it to come up with that uh, theory of mind uh, thing? And then once you have, you know, a bunch of stimuli and a bunch of responses, then you have empirical uh, variation on what those, uh, uh, what, those, what those measures are. Do you see anything you're doing as having significance beyond greater insight into the workings of the theory of mind? Um, yeah, I think the, uh, you know, I, these days I get my significance beyond theory of mind from other, uh, uh, other areas. Uh, so, you know, the interviews that I do via this podcast is one of them. And then, uh, ultimately what I want to do is, is writing, uh, which, um, you know, that, that's, that's the things that I, that I'm working on that I think are really, much more important um but fiction uh no nonfiction. um i'm i'm uh finishing up a book proposal right now which i'm, I'm pretty excited about and hoping to to get off the ground and um oh, it's uh, basically on the intersect so so it, it's a historical narrative um actually around the the golden age of academia like we were we were talking about particularly about the harvard department of social relations and essentially the cognitive evolution and how basically a historical narrative about how all of those things were taking place at, um, you know, uh, the, with the epicenter being uh, Harvard Department of Social Relations and how actually the cognitive evolution, what we think of that as 
uh, is not just about like, oh, computers showed up on the screen on this on the scene. We started looking at computers and now, yay, we have cognitive psychology. But it was actually this very fundamentally social thing that all the people who are the precursors to the people who we think of as the linchpins of the cognitive evolution, you know, for example, Jerome Bruner, uh, Chomsky, etc., uh, had these dramatically social backgrounds uh, of which, you know, the Harvard Department of, uh, of Social Relations, its founders being like Talcott Parsons, Gordon Alpert, were, uh, you know, flagship examples of that. And so it starts off by examining, you know, what was happening in mid-century where all those ideas were being brought together and people were saying, hey, like, let's create a unified theory of, um, of mind and society. Basically, like, let's solve the theory of ev- everyone. Um, and, uh, and then uh, how that uh, manifested in those attempts how essentially cognitive science was the only one that was really successful in a certain way, and then how that sort of splintered off once, uh, you know, sort of uh, after that, sort of after the 60s, essentially, it it was no longer like, you know, we're not going to get the big theory. Let's go back to doing just sociology or just, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, anthropology, or in someone like Rick Schrader's case, you know, like, okay, let's, let's, let's combine you know, the study of culture and the study of psychology, that sort of stuff. So it's about, it's a historical narrative about the people and ideas that were at the core of that really crucial period of um, the, the science of, of human behavior. It's interesting because I was supposed to do my graduate work at the Harvard Department of Social Relations because my um, advisor, yeah. my advisor was Mark Granovetter. At oh, well, he's been on the podcast, as has uh, Dick Nisbet, who you mentioned earlier. So Mark... Mark wanted to take me to back to Harvard and I got admitted and I was supposed to go with him. And then I started doing basically what you just said is I was going like, where is this department going? I mean, it was very interesting. Yeah. This was 73, I think, or four. And I'm going, it's not as interesting as that it once the was. That the last years that it existed. It would have dissolved. That's right. right and, and Columbia seemed to me more which is why I decided at the end to not go there. My, I probably would have been very different if I had. I, I think you probably made the right decision given the the time frame because I, I think of Mark Granovetter as sort of the last uh, person who really got the most out of, of Sockrell uh, because obviously he went on to be phenomenally successful and, and, and that sort of stuff. And he, he did his graduate work there. I think graduated in like 68. And so... Um, uh, you know, I think I think the one of the interesting observations about Sockrell is that for the first, let's say it lasted 30 years, for the first 15 years, the first half of it, the most interesting people there were its founders, the people who came in with interesting interdisciplinary ideas about how to build something, an, a, a, a truly interdisciplinary enterprise. And yes. then in the second half, the interesting people who were there, there were a couple of interesting professors, but mostly it was not the faculty. It was the graduate students. Um, it was it was Mark Granovetter. It was uh, Rick Schwader. It was it was it was other people. Clifford Gertz, um, and uh, and then uh, it was the people who who were able to learn something about each of these uh, disciplines from psychology, sociology, anthropology, etc., and then return to their home discipline, having learned stuff about important stuff about what other people were doing, and then changing the way uh, you know things were done, the the core ideas of their home disciplines. 
based off of that interdisciplinary experience. And that's that's the sort of thing that Mark Mark Granovetter did in my my reading. Well, it might be interesting historically. The reason we did that the 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 this master's program at Johns Hopkins was it was precisely an attempt to recreate the interdisciplinary um, effervescence of the original Harvard Department of Social Relations. So yeah. Johns Hopkins brought Mark, brought Peter Rossi, brought Dyson Hudson, brought anthropologists, psychologists, sociologists together to form. It lasted one year, right? It didn't work, which is why I left. Yeah. Wow. Um, I wonder but about it that. I noticed you got your master's in social relations. So I was wondering. Yeah, which is why Mark left the same year. I mean, it, it sort of, it just didn't congeal. There was not that society of intellectual convergence that there was in Harvard back in the late 50s, early 60s. It didn't work. Um which is too bad. Yeah. Um, no, and that's that, that's the that's one of I mean, there's a lot of big questions around looking at this historical event. But one of the questions is, so why why did this slash does this not work? How how why are we not able to recreate this? This is a fundamental nature of of knowledge, knowledge production, the American higher education system. Uh, that's no, of, I think it's it's it's. The, the larger question, which I haven't been able to answer, um, I have a very good friend, Robert Axelrod, Bob Axelrod, and we have these weekly discussions, you know, where we come up with questions, we ask one another. And one of the questions is, why is it, this we, we started working on in July, why is it that at certain periods of history, in certain times, you get an intellectual effervescence and convergence, and then it just disappears? I mean... This was true in ancient Athens. It was true in Vienna uh, in the interwar years. Uh, it was true in anthropology at Columbia when Boaz came in and brought people together from all over the place. Yeah. It was true to, to some extent to Harvard. Um, and then it just goes away. Because the reason it goes away, you know, one of the things we find in France all the time is we have these great intellectually creative um, hope would-be mentors like um, um, Lévi-Strauss or Jacob and Mondo or um, Louis Dumont or Maus and Durkheim. But they can't, there's no way for them to they're so intellectually creative and idiosyncratic. There's no way to pass that creativity and idiosyncrasy right. on. You can't teach. It's like when people tell me, to, okay, teach what you know. It, I say, you can't teach what I know. I mean, yeah. You can't teach how people to behave with other people. In their case, you can't teach them to have these quirky ideas. You may get one student or two students, uh, but you can't create a community. I mean, these mentors are able to bring together people, create a circle yeah. that feeds off one another, but it rarely goes beyond the one generation. It just doesn't work. So here, here's, um, here's an interesting, I think a, an instructive example of that in psychology is, is starting with William James. So you have William James, 1890, Principles of Psychology. Everyone's like, all right, great. Like this is, this is what psychology is going to, to look like. And then um, 1910, William James dies. 
everyone sort of looks around each other and be like, okay, the big guy's gone. What do we do now? And no one has any real idea how to continue psychology in the absence of William James because William James did not leave a research agenda. He was just this idiosyncratic, brilliant mind. And so that void was filled by two things. One was behaviorism, uh, which we know was dominant from essentially the, the 20s through, uh, let's say, the 50s, and, um, uh, and then Freudianism. And both of those uh, are not, you know, you can trace them back to a single person, John Watson and, of course, Freud, uh, but they are frameworks of research where the vast majority of people are doing something uh, like myself, which is here's the big idea that we're all working towards. We've got, you know, a couple experimental paradigms that everyone's going to use and everyone's going to do just a tiny little uh, thing on that. And so I think there's actually sort of an anti-correlation between, you know, you have these big thinkers uh, we can we can talk your your Jameses, your Levi Strauss, your 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 Gertz, and uh, they come up with ideas. But in order to really have a research program that need that that can make cumulative progress, you don't uh, want everyone to be an idiosyncratic thinker. You want everyone to fall in line with the paradigm. Then we can say, oh, we've used Bayesian models, we've just diffusion models a thousand different ways. And now we can say all of these things in the same language because everyone has been doing. Uh, so, so yeah, having the, having these brilliant individuals versus, um, you know, these paradigms that gain a lot of traction, I think there's, there's a little bit of a, a natural tension between them. Thinking about that, you know, there was one one strain that came out of harvard that managed to just keep going and that was charles pierce who was one of these great idiots who never accepted by the way by the larger psychological and philosophical community but for me yeah. certainly the most creative of all of these guys yeah but i always ask myself i mean can I name on one hand any progress we've made really in psychology other than perception since since the Greeks, where we <laughs> definitely know something yeah. very profound yeah, about yeah. human nature? I, I say, yeah, okay, Chomsky was able to do that. He really did give us insight into how to explore certain aspects. Uh, Anthropologists have given us much more nuanced and true version of the diversity of human experience than, say, Herodotus was able to give us. Um, but as far as deep, deep questions about human nature and consciousness and will and meanings of life and things like that, um, or even how we organize the world, I always find myself going back to some original thinkers, which have insights that I that I find even more compelling than insights today. For even even when I try to think about which societies survive and how yeah. they survive, why does survive? Why does this society survive and this don't? I don't buy the bunk of rise, natural rise and falls of empires and things like that. You know, I, I go back to people like Ibn Khaldun or who who actually were there observing watching these societies live and die and trying to figure out these things and i find them much more for me insightful than most modern historians 
Uh, anyway, I'm just going off on my own thing. No, no, I get that. And I'm, I, I think that there are probably some, uh, you know, it, it probably the Blaken statement of, of what have we learned since the Greeks in psychology is probably a little bit more than uh, I think that you uh, alluded to. But I, I certainly am sympathetic to when I find myself going into maybe not the biggest questions of psychology, like what's the meaning of life, but, you know, the slightly, uh, you know, smaller ones. I find myself going back to the people who originally framed the problems like your your Gordon Alperts, your Jerome Bruners, your your George Millers, that sort of stuff. But I also well, they certainly say, give us a lot more insight into um, how can I put it uh, the 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 anchoring of things we knew about. Hmm. that how well anchored they are um i uh i wanted to go back to something you said about charles sanders purse um so first of all uh also a, a fan of his his work one of my favorite books of all time is uh metaphysical club by uh lewis menand uh um which you know looks at american pragmatism and charles sanders purse and william james all that actually he's got his new book coming out um and so he's going to be on the show uh, a couple weeks from now, really excited about that. Um, but um, uh, have you talked to Dan Everett recently? Because he is currently working on what I can only imagine is a big ass intellectual biography of uh, Purse, which I know he's been working on for a very long time, and the guy is obsessed with Purse. So if if you uh, you know are looking for someone to get your Purse discussion on with, uh, I, I can only imagine that's what he's spent his entire lockdown on. Nah, well, sure, I'd, I'd like to. I, I was just thinking of, um, you know, the people who I think may have made great contributions to psychology. Say, say Donny Kahneman. I, I really like Donny's work and Amos's work. I think they were terrific, but I don't think, I think they're... The, the 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 eye openingness of it is only eye opening to economists and psychologists. Mm. I don't think real people in the real world ever believed what the psychologists and econo economists were saying mm. that people how people thought or should thought. So that's why I even that kind of work, which I think is the best psychology has to offer. I mean, to what extent does that really tell us something new that we didn't know about human beings, something deep, the way we knew about the circulation of the blood that we didn't know, or the way we knew about structure of atoms or genes, or anyway, we can get off on on this, but I, 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 I don't see, maybe we can't, maybe some of the problems are just too hard to really get um, truly theoretical insight into what's going on. You know, um, I think it goes back to something that you were saying about anthropology and how anthropology studies specifics. I mean, know a lot more about specific, um, you know, aspects of specific societies. And so in psychology, 
you know, psych, first day of Psych 101, they tell you about internal validity and external validity, right? Internal validity being how good is your experiment from a scientific point of view, external validity being are you actually saying something uh, about something that exists in the real world that actually is relevant to human behavior as it naturally occurs? And what they don't tell you in Psych 101 or ever in psychology is that there is essentially uh, those are antithetical forces that as uh, in, in the general case, as your experiment becomes more scientifically rigorous, you are less likely to be studying something that is actually uh, representative of natural human behavior and vice versa. It becomes very difficult to become to be scientifically rigorous in the true experimental, uh, you know, control group, uh, experiment, you know, statistics, etc. Sense by looking at things that actually happen in the real world, um, and uh, so you know that tension is something we don't talk about in psychology, but I think it's totally true. And um, I think that that if you want to go down the lines of saying like, well, maybe it's not possible to have really scientific explanations, some of the stuff that we really want to know, I think that's the reason for it, is that fundamental tension between internal and external validity. It's hard, but I mean, that's one of the things that really motivates my work, why I go to the battlefield to run my experiments during a battle or in a battle. hundred percent. And I, 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 yes, yes. I think you're right about that. I think that, uh, you know, when we look at the academics, what they're willing to do and what the system encourages people to do, uh, you know, there's not enough of that. That's, that's, that, that's the problem is that's, that is what you have to do if you want to overcome that, um, that's that tension, something really dramatic like it's that. It's very, very hard though. It's hard for a number of reasons. First it's risky. Most people are don't want to take the risk. They don't go into academia to take a risk, especially of their lives. Second, um, human subjects reviews make it very, very difficult because they don't want to upset the sensibilities of undergraduates. They don't let you have any people. fun these days. Yeah, and and in, the, in 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 a war, you've got to upset people's sensibilities are upset. And if you want to get anything like what's really going on, you have to deal with that. So we find it very, very Difficult. In fact, I, I, I never. We can't do these experiments with funding from universities, even governments. One of the reasons I set up this thing called Artists with these policymakers and academics is precisely so we can fund our own thing. We mm -hmm. have human subjects reviews and things like that, but under the realization, okay, if you're, uh, if you're in a war. Um, it's going to be uncomfortable and you have to be able to deal in a comfortable situation with what people are actually dealing with. And, uh, you know, yeah. asking questions that don't bother people and uh, make people uncomfortable is not going to get you going to get you very far. In fact, it's going to get you absolutely nowhere. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, I am not interested in doing academic research as such anymore. Yeah. It just, doesn't have any I'm interested in doing my only interest in, in 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 the in the experimental methods and in sort of rigorous modeling is simply a translation mechanism uh, I remember Einstein said that not that I want to compare <laughs> I said that look I I wasn't really interested in mathematics at all in fact it was hard for me and I didn't like it, 
But I realized that the only way I was going to communicate my ideas was not only to master it, but being able to develop mathematics that could communicate them so that the rest of the community can see what was going on, at least in my mind, and see if it was right or wrong or we can advance things. I feel the same thing about experimentation and method in psychology. That is the only thing it serves as a tool for conveying ideas that you think are important for whatever reason. In my case, uh, the reason is, you know, how can you um, prevent the death of cultures and how can you prevent violence from becoming rampant yeah. uh, and fragmenting societies the way they are? So, yeah, we're, you know, we're coming up on the two hour mark here and uh, we didn't even get to most of the stuff that I admire you uh, on, on your work for and all that sort of stuff. And I have a, a ton of, uh, you know, questions and things that I'm interested to hear about that. So I think, you know, in, in the interest of all involved, maybe we can just put a pin in things for now, knowing that we got uh, heavily sidetracked into worthwhile, but uh, tangential, tangential interests. Uh, but I yes. would, uh, you know, if you, if we can ever find a, a time for it, it doesn't have to be near future, but you know, if we can ever find, I would love to do, uh, you know, a part uh, two, part two to get into the, the second half, the second act. Sure. Uh, you know, uh, but that'd be great. Uh, so yeah, no, thank you so much for doing this today though. Sure. Cody. All right. We'll do it again. Bye Sounds bye. good. See you, Scott. But that's it for this week on Cognitive Revolution. As always, thank you for listening. If you've been enjoying the show, I'd love to hear from you. You can send me an email at cody.commerce.writing at gmail.com or a direct message on Twitter at Cody Commerce. You can also get updates on all the latest episodes by following at CogRevPod. If you want to support the show, you can do so by purchasing a book at bookshop.org slash shop slash revolution, or if you're in the UK, uk.bookshop.org slash shop slash revolution. If you enjoy the show, I'd also appreciate it if you would consider subscribing through whichever platform you may be listening on or leaving a review on iTunes. These numbers are one of the main drivers of bringing in new listeners to the show. If you want to connect with me more generally, you can do so on Instagram at Cody Commerce. And if you want to keep up with my writing, the best way to do so is to subscribe to my Substack at codycommerce.substack.com. Oh, and by the way, you can also listen to my travel podcast, Notes from the Field, through whichever platform you may currently be listening on. Finally, you can find more about me and my work at codycommerce.com. As always, thank you for listening, and I'll be back next week with another episode of Cognitive Revolution. <laughs>